Exactly 17 years ago, I moved from Southern California to Chicago. Something felt different about the Midwest. People didn't honk their horns as often. They were friendly, actually. They used words like expressway and malort. And if you accidentally bump into someone, instead of excuse me, you'd say ope. That's spelled O-P-E, ope. But the most eye-opening thing about the Midwest was the food. In Iowa, I had something called a loose meat sandwich. That's a sloppy joe without the sauce. At a place called Solly's Grill in Milwaukee, I ate a cheeseburger topped with, I kid you not, an ice cream scoop full of fresh butter. My cardiologist appreciates the business. And when I met the woman who'd become my wife, she cooked me a Midwest culinary specialty, pork tenderloin breaded with crumbled saltine crackers fried in butter. People tend to mock Midwestern food, but I've grown to admire it. It's rich, comforting, and can be really delicious. And one of the great expressions of Midwest culinary culture is the Jello salad. It's as much a salad as chicken salad is a salad. Back in the day, every summer cookout and church potluck was guaranteed to feature a Jello salad. Sometimes it was fruit-filled and topped with whipped cream. Other times it was savory stuffed with chicken and olives. However you made it, Jell-O salad was at one point the premier dish you can bring to a Midwestern get-together. So, how did Jell-O become so popular? And, well, whatever happened to it? Today, we're going to find out. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Kevin Pang, and this is Proof. Producer Karen Given brings us this story. Near as I can tell, my obsession with gelatin salads began when I was a kid. So to help me tell that story, I called my mom, Michelle Given. When my mom and I talk, we usually just use the phone for reasons that will soon become apparent. Okay, I'm going to access the camera. Okay. (laughs) Oh, I now see you. My parents still live on the street where I grew up, in Joshua Tree, California, a mile and a quarter from the nearest paved road. The internet is a little spotty. When I lived there, there was no internet. We didn't have a TV. My siblings and I were the only kids within walking distance. I was bored, so I started reading cookbooks. One time, when my grandparents came to visit, my mom, my grandma, and I ended up sitting at the kitchen table. The other kids were off playing, and you were sitting there reading the cookbooks with us. Pretty soon, we got a little tired of reading cookbooks, but you were, like, still into it. Oh, let's talk about these recipes. I'm like, oh, no, let's not. (laughs) I don't actually remember this, but I have no doubt that it's true. I get the sense that Grandma didn't really like to cook. That's true. Kind of like me. Because we had to cook all the time. You know, we had to cook whether we were tired, whether we wanted to. We had to feed the family. When I was maybe 10 or 11, I started cooking a lot of the family meals, partly because my mom was working full time, but also because I just liked to cook. I loved experimenting and messing around with recipes, combining methods, figuring out what worked best. It relaxed me. 
it gave me a creative outlet. Even though my grandma never enjoyed cooking, one of the cookbooks I'd use for inspiration was one that she had written. Sort of. It's about five inches tall and eight inches wide, held together by a black plastic binder. The cover is mustard yellow with geometric designs. Very 1970s. My grandma put it together when she was working for the Central Orange County YWCA. I think it was probably a fundraiser. And I remember her saying she typed all the recipes and gathered them all from people that they knew. This cookbook has only one recipe for a gelatin salad. It's pretty tame. Lemon jello, raspberry jello, cranberry orange relish, and frozen raspberries, unmolded on greens and served with a dressing made by mixing together mayonnaise and sour cream. <laughs> my mom says grandma never made that one because my grandfather hated mayonnaise. Over the years, I've collected a lot more of these cookbooks. They're called community cookbooks, and they were a very popular way to raise money for churches and schools. Here's a gelatin salad recipe from the Square Dance Cookbook, Detroit, Michigan, 1961. Crushed pineapple, lime gelatin, grated American cheese, chopped pimento, chopped celery, chopped walnuts, whipped cream, and olives. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. (laughs) They just threw in everything except the kitchen sink. Ever since the beginning of Jell-O and gelatin, these things have been happening. That's Laura Shapiro. She's a culinary historian, and she's written a bunch of books about women and cooking. To me, that's the only way to write about either women or cooking is to do it together. Laura says books like my grandma's can tell you a lot about culinary history. These community cookbooks are full of recipes that came from women themselves. They were donated, and they didn't put them in unless they were really proud of them, and they knew they worked, and people had applauded them for it. So it's really, it is exactly how people really cooked. So when Mrs. R.A. Byers submitted her frozen salad of lime jello, canned mixed vegetables, chopped celery, and mayonnaise to the Nipa Community Recipe Roundup, you can bet she had actually served this dish to her family. If you look through enough of these community cookbooks, you can start to see trends. So in the 50s and early 60s, sometimes half of the recipes in the salad section used at least one box of gelatin. But starting in the late 60s, those recipes began to drop off. Gelatin salads appeared more often in the dessert section, and they became something that was served on holidays and special occasions, not every night. So by the time my grandma typed up that cookbook for the Orange County YWCA in 1975, there was just one recipe for a gelatin salad, that tart molded salad with its sour cream and mayonnaise dressing that made my mom go, (laughs) So what happened? Why did gelatin salad suddenly become so much less popular? To really understand that story, we have to go back to the beginning. Today, we might think of gelatin as a treat for kids or sick people, but it didn't start out that way. As far back as the Middle Ages, gelatin was a food that was served to royalty and the very rich. That's because it took a lot of labor and a lot of time to make. They usually made it from calves' feet, 
That's Carolyn Wyman, author of Jello, a biography. And they had to boil them, remove the scum, boil again for as long as like six or seven hours. Then they had to strain it. They had to let it cool, skim the fat. Eggshells were added to pick up impurities, and the mixture was boiled again and strained twice more. And then finally, it was time to add flavorings and sugar, which, by the way, was extremely expensive. You poured in a jelly mold, and of course, no refrigerator, so you had to pack it in ice. And then basically take a very long nap because that's a hell of a lot of work. Gelatin was served to the likes of Richard II, Napoleon Bonaparte, Maria de' Medici, and Thomas Jefferson. Well, the way people in those days showed off their wealth was to serve their guests this fancy molded gelatin desserts because it was proof positive that you had a lot of servants to help you out. The Victorians loved their gelatin, or jelly molds, which produce ornate designs like castles or multi-tiered jelly cakes, Smaller, still intricate designs produced jellied lobsters or roses and were often served between courses. Although tin or cotton molds were common, Staffordshire and Wedgwood produced fired pottery molds for the Victorian household. They're rarely used today, but they're very collectible. Gelatin's transition from a food for the rich and royal to something the average American housewife could make for her family began in the mid-1800s, when industrialists and glue manufacturers started looking for ways to monetize animal byproducts. In 1845, industrialist Peter Cooper, better known for inventing the Tom Thumb steam locomotive, was issued a patent for powdered gelatin. But it wasn't very appetizing and the product didn't sell. Over the next 50 years, the method for manufacturing powdered gelatin was improved, and people started adding sugar and flavorings to improve the taste. And then, in 1897, Jell-O was invented. Jell-O actually wasn't invented, um, to be specific about it. That's Lynn Belluccio, curator of the Jell-O Gallery in Leroy, New York. And she is always specific when it comes to Jell-O. What it did was it introduced a brand name for a product that was already out there. The Jell-O story begins with a man named Pearl Bixby Waite. He was a young man in his 20s, and he was a carpenter in town. He was a carpenter in Leroy and built houses, but in the wintertime, you can't build houses necessarily. And so he had invested in some patent medicines, cough medicines, laxative teas. Waite mixed sugar and flavorings with powdered gelatin. His wife helped with the name, and Jello was born. Nobody really knows, I mean, what prompted him to introduce this. I mean, some of the stories are, I was coming up with a cough medicine, we don't think that was the case. And what he does is he doesn't patent the recipe, he trademarks J-E-L-L hyphen O. But Waite didn't have any luck selling his new product, so he offered the trademark to a much more successful patent medicine manufacturer in Leroy, a man named Order Woodward. And so Order Woodward, in 1899, buys the rights to Jell-O for $450. You know, and it might be one of those urban legends, but, you know, it was told that they couldn't sell it either. And he offered it to his plant manager and said, here, Sam, you can have all of this for $35 and Sam Nico said, I'm not interested. If you can't sell it, I can't either. The problem was at the time, you know, women really 
were used to foods that they could make with recipes. They were used to, to ingredients. That's Carolyn Wyman again. And this might be another one of those urban legends, but as the story goes, Order Woodward sent his most handsome salesmen in their most attractive suits to go door-to-door by horse and carriage to teach women how to make jello. They sent them out um, with recipe books. You know, the women wanted recipes. They said, all right, we'll give you recipes. They blanketed the, the, the world with recipe books. And Lynn Beluccio says it worked. By 1907, Jell-O is grossing a million dollars a year. That's a lot of 10-cent boxes. A lot of 10-cent boxes. But this rise in sales, it wasn't all about recipe books and clever advertising. Because right around the time Jell-O came onto the market, an influential group of women began their crusade to change the way American housewives fed their families. And gelatin would play an important role in their new food movement. Between May and October of 1893, 25 million people visited the World's Fair in Chicago. Fairgoers enjoyed their first taste of cream of wheat, juicy fruit gum, and Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Many of them saw electric lights for the first time. The fair's large temporary buildings were decorated with ornate classical white stucco facades, which led the site to be dubbed the White City. But on the extreme south end, there was a small, plain, freestanding frame house called the Rumford Kitchen. Here's Laura Shapiro again. It was a demonstration kitchen that would show anybody who came by, would show correct, sanitary, scientific, nutrient-oriented ways of cooking. The kitchen served lunch between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. every day. But more than that, it introduced visitors to the science of cooking. Charts on the walls explained the chemical composition of food. Printed menus introduced the concepts of protein, fat, carbohydrates, and calories. The room was only big enough to serve 30 patrons at a time. And construction and politics delayed its opening until mid-August. But between August and October, Ellen Richards and her crew served 10,000 meals. Ellen Richards was, she, she's uh, remembered as the founder of home economics. She was a very important person in the creation of home economics as a scientific and academic discipline. Ellen Richards ran the women's laboratory at MIT, where women could come to study the chemistry of cooking and cleaning. What really drove them was also a new view of the woman in the kitchen, the woman who did the cooking. She was not just mom. She was, she was a scientist. She was a domestic scientist. Shapiro says the goal was to place new value on the work women were doing inside the home. You certainly weren't going to put new value on the role of that woman by encouraging her to go out and get a job or sending her to school to really learn science. No, but... Once she was at home and uh, we were all convinced that she belonged at home, then she should be able to think of herself in the role of somebody very important there. The domestic scientists, or home economists, as they'd later become known, imagined a world where girls would receive a formal education in the science of cooking and cleaning, starting in elementary school and right on up through high school and college. And their whole idea was that cooking was not just 
kind of stumbling into the kitchen and doing things the way your mother did. You had to open a book, one of their cookbooks, they hoped, which would give you a very clearly written out, careful recipe, which you would follow exactly. It would be kind of nutrient first. It would not be flavor first. It would not be pleasure first. This is definitely the way my mom cooked. When my mom cooked for our family, her focus was on how to provide the best nutrition with the least amount of time, money, and effort. She didn't know it, but it was exactly the kind of cooking Ellen Richards and the early home economists would have taught. Back at the turn of the 20th century, scientists were just starting to study nutrition and calories, and those early home economists had some pretty strange theories about food, including the belief that men's and women's bodies required different foods for optimum health. Fanny Farmer, the great authority who ran the Boston Cooking School, she used to publish dinners for men and luncheons for women. And the dinners for men... Everything was kind of big and hefty and full of protein. If there was a salad, you didn't just pass it on your own. You anchored it with a huge serving of ham. And then the women's meals were, oh, maybe a little omelet or a little creamed fish and then 16 different desserts. The home economists were big on salads, at least for women. But they were always looking for ways to contain them, to make them look pretty on the plate. You would have a scoop of some kind of salad in a little lettuce leaf. Or you would scoop it into a hollowed-out tomato or a hollowed-out turnip. That must have been delicious. There was a salad that was encased in a block of ice. I have never figured out what they really meant by that or how you were supposed to get to it. But the idea was to keep it within bounds. And this is where gelatin came into the picture. When jello and easy-to-use granulated gelatin came along at the turn of the century, it went right into salads. Gelatin salads gave women the opportunity to be creative in the kitchen. Manufacturers like Jell-O and Knox continued to flood the market with brightly illustrated recipe booklets. But women soon discovered that they could add anything to gelatin, as long as it wasn't fresh pineapple. Fresh pineapples, by the way, interfere with the gelling process. Women would bring their most impressive gelatin salads to potlucks and ladies' lunches, and then they'd share the recipes with their friends and in community cookbooks. In those old community cookbooks, it's often difficult to tell the salads from the desserts. So when Bessie Dahl submitted her lime jello, cream cheese, canned pears, and whipped cream recipe to 1961's Square Dance Cookbook, it was listed in the salad section. That was your salad. That was the healthy part. I don't think the American palate has ever recovered from discovering this. Sometimes these dishes would have names that hinted to a deeper meaning, like lemon angel dessert or perfection salad. They were created uh, for women to make and women to eat, but they were really uh, created as a way to identify women with food in a certain way. Women were supposed to be sweet and have no body and certainly have no brain and just exist in a little ethereal cloud of sweetness that just appeared. Nobody had done any work for it. All those things were feminine qualities. They were served everywhere and certainly men ate them, but uh, 
but they had I Am Woman written all over them and not the Helen Reddy version. <laughs> I grew up after the heyday of Jello salads, and I only really remembered my mom making one, usually at Thanksgiving or Easter. We called it orange jello, but my mom says her recipe card lists it as Barbara's salad, named after the person who gave her the recipe. We went to like a potluck thing at somebody's house. Somebody was moving away and um, and she said, I think of this as being kind of diet. It has five things in it. It's really easy to remember. So I didn't even write it down. Oh, wait, what is it? <laughs> now I'm going to forget. I love my mom dearly, but she's never had a good memory. Pineapple, orange, mandarin oranges, orange um, jello, Cool Whip. (laughs) What was the fifth thing? I don't know. I never made it. Near as I can tell, there are just two possible explanations for this. One is that I just wasn't interested. Five ingredients? Leave that to the amateurs. And two, well, I wasn't a picky eater, but there were two things I absolutely would not eat. Liver, which my mom would never consider putting in jello, and cottage cheese. It's not cottage cheese, is it? <gasps> I'm thinking maybe it is. Maybe that's why you never made it, because you don't eat cottage cheese. So that's what it is. Cottage cheese, cool whip, and drained pineapple, mandarin orange, and one box of orange jello. And mother ate it and said it tasted like a dessert. (laughs) She said, why are we eating this as a salad? It tastes like dessert. My mom says she hasn't made orange jello for years maybe decades. So why do I care about a weird old gelatin salad recipe my family doesn't even eat anymore? Laura Shapiro has an answer. Any individual dish in a Fanny Farmer cookbook or or something that appeared in one of the magazines, maybe that particular dish died the month after it was published. But ways of thinking about food lasted a long time. The idea that women and men were different at the table, it enters American conventional wisdom. That becomes how we think about food. When we return, Jell-O and the Arts of Advertising. The Veroni family has manufactured cured meats with ancient recipes and artisanal techniques in Italy since 1925. What began as a small grocery store run by five brothers would eventually become a global purveyor of charcuterie. So what's their secret to success? Family and respect, says Veroni USA president Marco Veroni. My father is our guide and his way of teaching us, of respecting not only the people inside the company, but the customer to be like a very, very big family. That's important because it means respect for everybody. And in the long run, it pays off. Now, the fourth generation Veronis are leading the helm of the business, priding themselves on bringing charcuterie and cured meats from their family table to yours. Hey, Proof listeners. If there's one thing I want you to know about me, it's that I like using tools that feel good in my hands. That's where OXO comes in. 
When founder Sam Farber debuted OXO's iconic vegetable peeler, he asked retailers to display the peeler next to a bowl of carrots so people could sample the product at the store. Believe it or not, nothing like it had really been done before. What better way to get a feel for a product than to try it out right then and there? Right now, OXO is offering a special discount for proof listeners. Just use the code ATK15 for 15% off on OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. As a podcast host, full-time grad student, and dad, I gotta say, I enjoy a glass of wine or three to unwind. And if you're like me and appreciate a nice libation at home, Naked Wines has you covered. They make it easy to get world-class wines delivered to your home. You'll be supporting winemakers who produce wines exclusive to Naked Wine subscribers. And if you're not completely satisfied, there's a hassle-free money-back guarantee. And believe it or not, home delivery is included. Get started today and save $100 off your first order of $140. A six-bottle case starts at just $39.99. Visit NakedWines.com slash SummerProof and you'll have yourself a glass of your own. Naked Wines, from the winemaker to your door. And now, back to our story. Allie Robottom sometimes says that she comes from Jell-O, and she's not wrong. My great, great, great uncle, by marriage, bought the patent to Jell-O from its inventor, Pearl Waite, um, for $450 in 1899, and in the 1920s, then sold the Jell-O company to Postum. And when Orator Woodward sold Jell-O, his family became rich, really rich, and a little bit cursed. Allie writes about that in her book, Jell-O Girls. In 1997, when Allie was 10 or 11, her mother took her on a trip to Leroy, New York, where Jell-O had been invented and for many years manufactured. I remember very clearly, we didn't go to Leroy often. Um, I think my mom in particular sort of wanted to stay away. She always referred to the town as like Brigadoon, as in she would go and sort of get trapped in, in this time hole and not be able to get back to her real life. But going for the 100th anniversary was a big deal. And we made a big trip. Um, There was a lot of fanfare. And I remember feeling really excited by all of the like jello paraphernalia and um, the wonderful stories that uh, natives of Leroy would tell about jello. That's when Allie first learned about one particular ancestor and her dinner party tradition. So that was Edith, and she was my mother's great aunt. And Edith would have my mother and her parents and her brother um, to the big house on the hill for dinners and special events for which she would um, summon her servants via a button that she would press um, with her toe under the table when it was time for the next course or um, time for some kind of table service. And one of the things she would summon with this button under the table was jello, right? Yes, yes. I I think it was served um, at times with sort of like a wink and a nod, like, isn't this cute? Isn't this charming that we're serving jello? Which 
Jello had become a food for the masses. So um, I think that it was served alongside other possibly grander desserts, but it was always included. That first night in Leroy, as Allie was being tucked into bed in her uncle's house, her mom told her a bedtime story about the dangers of Jell-O. I think she saw um, the product, and in particular the marketing that um, had been used to sell the product over the decades, as part and parcel of this sort of patriarchal system that encourages women to stay small and silent and housebound in the kitchen. From the very early days of Jell-O, notions of femininity were baked into the company's advertising. In 1904, Jell-O ads began featuring photographs of a little girl who wore her hair in a blonde bob. Her name was Elizabeth King. Elizabeth King was the daughter of Franklin King, who was uh, hired as one of the first marketing consultants for the Jell-O brand and, and someone who was really tasked with finding a way to make Jell-O um, a product that people would want to buy. And that was initially a struggle. And he happened upon his young daughter, who was beautiful and blonde and cherubic, um, and thought, Maybe this would be something that would work. And he had her pose holding jello boxes um, with a tagline, so easy a child could do it. And, and thus the jello girl was born. When Elizabeth turned eight, ad executives stopped taking her photo. Instead, they used illustrations so that the jello girl would never grow up. She was prim and pretty and dedicated to serving her family and and being of service in this cute and really ideal way. And I think that that really, as much as Jell-O ads changed over the years, that sort of remained true. It, It was a question of how a woman could fulfill her primary duty of being of service to her family and her husband and whether or not she was leaving the house to work, as was the case in the late 70s, or staying at home entirely, as in the 1950s. Like, the idea was how could she most effectively serve her family. J-E-L-L-O! The Jell-O Program, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston and Phil Harris and his orchestra. In 1934, Jell-O became the sponsor of Jack Benny's radio show, where the midpoint commercial was part of the entertainment. It was so thoughtful of you to have Jell-O for dinner. No wonder it's a plastic... In this skit, Mr. Average American, Av for short, is enjoying the Jell-O salad his wife made for dessert while she tries desperately to deliver some important news. It's been gnawing at my heart for weeks and I can't keep the secret any longer. Gee, these sliced bananas add just the right touch to it. What were you saying, dear? My love for you has grown cold. Please understand, I'm not doing this to hurt you. But tonight I'm leaving you forever. Gee, this is good. I can understand now why Jell-O sales are breaking records all over the country. And these messages were backed up by colorful print ads. Here's Lynn Beluccio of the Jell-O Gallery again. One of my favorite is um, there's a man sitting there reading the, we find out, Sunday newspaper with a child at his knee. And it says, happy Mr. Man. And his wife is out in the kitchen preparing preparing the Sunday meal, which has got to include Jell-O, you know, it reflected what they expected at the time. And you see that, and you do see that through the Jell-O advertising. 
Jell-O was by no means the only company or product sending these messages to women. And Laura Shapiro warns against allowing food advertisers to write our culinary history. Of course they wanted women to believe that their husbands would be happy and their kids well-behaved if they served Jell-O. It was a great way to increase sales. Shapiro says that women, those who worked inside and outside of the home, were doing a lot more cooking from scratch than advertisers would have us believe. But if you listen to the advertisers, you might start to think that women would have been lost in the kitchen without their favorite products. The Betty Crocker Service Program, a regular feature of General Mills. During World War II, housewives got their cooking tips over the radio, and the message was clear. Of course, when you think of preparing a meal that will go to a man's heart, you think of steak. For all men seem to love steak. Steak was in short supply during the war, so this was a recipe for what Betty liked to call emergency steak. Mixed together, one pound of ground beef, hamburger. Instructions were given clearly and very, very slowly. One cup of Wheaties. Look, if things had continued like this, I don't think I ever would have developed my love of cooking. I mean, it's not just that Wheaties mixed with ground beef sounds disgusting. It's the patronizing way women were being taught to cook, as if everything had to be made super simple for the feeble female brain to understand. But in 1963, someone came along who had a different approach to teaching women and men how to cook. You could get your fish man to do this for you, but I think it's rather fun. Earth. Unlike the fictional Betty Crocker, Julia Child was decidedly non-fictional. I think it gets rid of aggressions if people have aggressions against fish. Oh. In 1948, Julia moved to Paris with her husband Paul, who worked for the U.S. Foreign Service. She learned French, and soon she was looking for something else to fill her time. Here's Laura Shapiro. A friend of Paul's suggested that since she liked food, maybe she should try the Cordon Bleu because housewives and people could go and, and take a, a course there. She went over there and they put her in the housewives course and she thought it was stupid. So she asked to be transferred to the professional course or a professional course, which was mostly populated by men who were out of the armed forces and they were on the GI Bill and they were training as cooks. Julia earned the respect of her classmates, but professional cooking was still an exclusively male field, and not everyone was ready to listen to what a woman thought about food. Ordinary men, not even the chefs or real food people, but just men she would meet, Frenchmen she would meet at dinner parties, they, they were all madly talking about food. And as she said, you know, they didn't, they didn't know anything. She was the one who had studied it. She was the one who were who was up to her ears in scholarship and practice about great classic cooking. She knew way more than they did, and she couldn't get a word in edgewise, and if she said anything, they ignored her. Drove her crazy. 
Julia's cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, was published in the fall of 1961. By this time, Julia and Paul had moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and WGBH, the PBS station just down the road from Julia's house, invited her to come in to talk about her book. Instead, she showed up with a dozen eggs, a copper bowl, a whisk, and a hot plate, and made an omelet. Viewers loved it. Over the summer of 1962, WGBH asked Julia to record three pilot episodes for a new cooking show. And the following February, The French Chef was ready for its debut. But it would not air in the afternoons, alongside other cooking shows. At Julia's insistence, the program would air at 8 p.m., when both men and working women could watch. She was vehement that it should not be in the afternoon or confined to housewives. Housewives was a word she hated, and she had come to hate it because in the the years when she was trying to get Mastering the Art of French Cooking published and it was being batted around by editors and whatnot, they kept saying, this is so difficult, housewives are not going to like it. Housewives will not do this. The publishers were wrong, of course. Julia's book wasn't an instant hit, but sales surpassed everyone's expectations. Julia Child was known for cooking from scratch, but she wasn't against taking a shortcut every now and again, with one exception. Do we know how Julia Child felt about gelatin? Yes, it was one of the few things that she would not countenance in any form. I mean, an aspic, a traditional aspic, fine. A tomato aspic, for instance. I'm sure she took no offense at that, but jello as a vehicle or a dessert or a presence. She just, she just hated it. She truly thought it should go away. Once, Julia was asked to review a recipe collection for a fundraising cookbook, like the one my grandma typed up back in the 1970s. And she gave an honest response, even though these were friends or friends of friends. She said, you know, it's awful. You can't have this. (laughs) Here's what Julia wrote back to the cookbook authors. Packaged lime gelatin mixed with water, melted marshmallows, canned pineapple, cottage cheese, whipping cream, and nuts. This is a ghastly, horrible, disgraceful kind of dish that no one should hear of, even less eat. And to push this kind of food onto the American public should be considered a felony. Between 1968, that's five years after The French Chef premiered, and 1987, Jell-O sales plunged by 50%. So I couldn't help but ask, did Julia Child kill Jell-O? I think it's very, very uh, class-dominated, that notion. The people who learned directly from Julia, that is, bought the book, watched the TV show, did the recipes— were a narrow segment of America. It wasn't that Julia changed Jell-O lovers' minds about Jell-O. I think there were probably a million things that went into its disappearance. So if Julia Child didn't kill Jell-O, what did? When you look at a lot of food trends, you really have to look at, at the same time, things like other big inventions, you know? 
Carolyn Wyman says when freezers came into homes, so did ice cream and ice cream novelties. And when Americans became mobile with two cars in every driveway, desserts changed again. Most of the desserts we eat, you can pick them up, you know, and walk around with them because, I mean, unless it's a pandemic, they're, they're usually not staying in their house all day. Laura Shapiro believes that Jell-O simply lost its place as the only quick and easy dessert. Other desserts, even easier, came onto the market, like ice cream novelties and store-bought chocolate chip cookies. Faced with a downturn in sales, Jell-O started marketing their product as a food for kids. But the counterculture of the late 60s also introduced the health food movement. And slowly, over time, parents started worrying about what was in the food they fed their children— even an heiress of the Jell-O fortune didn't serve the stuff to her daughter. She was really um, cautious about like dyes and artificial sweeteners and that sort of thing, all of which Jell-O is completely rife with. Um, it's high in sugar, and if it's not high in sugar, it's high in sucralose and different dyes and whatnot. So she was very into like whole foods and less so into prepackaged products of any kind. Jello sales have had their ups and downs, and in recent years, sales have dropped even further. But Laura Shapiro says the story of Jello and gelatin salads is important, even as boxes of gelatin take up less space on our grocery store shelves. I think it captures a lot of uh, our ancient beliefs about women. These are beliefs that go back long before anyone invented Jell-O. We've always had this powerful need to divide. And if men were this, women must be that. And what women got was the Jell-O side of the equation. It resonated into how you train women, how you teach them, the work you let them do, the clothes that you think are suitable for them, the shoes that they have to wear, the behavior they have to put up with from their employer. There's a lot of things about jello sweetness, jello simplicity, jello childlikeness that resonated for a long time as femininity. And I think it helps to see that even now when we may not eat it. I was born after the decline of Jell-O, in a house without a TV. I don't even think I knew about Julia Child until I got to college. I certainly didn't know that she hated Jell-O. But still, I feel like my life was influenced by her. The people watching uh, The French Chef, it's not like they rushed out to make veal Prince Orloff. I promise you, they did not. Julia just made it possible to go into the kitchen with an open, inquiring mind and take on a challenge. She made it appealing to do that. Julia Child and others who saw cooking as a creative outlet instead of a woman's duty made it possible for me to be a little girl who sat at the kitchen table reading cookbooks while her mom and grandma wished they were doing something else. Thanks to Karen Given for bringing us this story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. 
I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm senior producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composer theme music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our post-production supervisor, and our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Michelle Given for being a part of this story. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors for this season, OXO, Naked Wines, Veroni, and Porter Road. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. 